Hello and welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Milder, and we have actually a couple guests this week. Uh, first off, we have author Holly Ray Garcia. So Holly works full-time as the Gulf Coast regional photographer for a global chemical company, but growing up, she read her mother's extensive Stephen King and True Crime collection, and a love for dark fiction with sad endings has stayed with her ever since. Holly especially loves the works of Edgar Allan Poe, Daniel Keyes, Richard Matheson, Stephen King, and Alfred Hitchcock. Her own books include Parachute, Come Join the Murder, and The Easton Falls Massacre, Bigfoot's Revenge, which was co-written with her husband and fellow author Ryan Prentice Garcia. Her shorter fiction has been published online and in print for various magazines and anthologies. And, of course, we've already talked about it on the podcast, she also edited Table for Three, a charity anthology that features novellas from Douglas Ford, Rebecca Rowland, and herself. Holly is an affiliate member of the Horror Writers Association, and she lives on the Texas coast with her family, and five large dogs. You can often find her reading, watching horror movies, or playing poker. So Holly and I talk a lot about her career as a writer, how she kind of got started as a writer, what her influences are, and then we definitely do dive into Table for Three, which will be released today. The day that this episode drops is the release date for Table for Three. I'll be putting uh, that in the show notes for the episode. But in addition, we also have a very quick interview with Alyssa Hall. So Alyssa's a performer, theater artist, director here in Albuquerque, and she will be staging with Musical Theater Southwest. She will be staging a new production of Sweeney Todd. So Alyssa and I talk a little bit about kind of the history of that play, the influences, where it comes from, and her own approach to directing this show. Sweeney Todd does open today in Albuquerque. If you want to get tickets to that, go to www.mtsabq.org. And so, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into my interview with Holly Ray Garcia. Uh, I was going through some of your, like, I've read I've read some of your short fiction over the years, but I was kind of going through your stuff on Amazon, and I realized you actually have a story in the very first anthology that I published in. <laughs> was it Isolation? Yes. Because <laughs> that's the very first story that I published in, too. I've oh, got really? It yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's from Fantasia Divinity Press. You know, and there's some... There's some issues. Uh, a lot of people, myself included, paid for uh, author copies, hardbacks when they were doing them and never mm-hmm. got them. They kept the money and disappeared. So. Yeah. they. So I don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah. Because, they, yeah, they were the first place I ever published. And then it seemed like, looked like they had a bunch of stuff out there. And I then know. they put Isolation out, uh, which is this anthology. It's a horror. It's like a horror anthology about isolation. It's going to write down the title. But then yeah. it seemed like they just like folded up and went away. I'm not sure. And like you said, I mean, it, it like you, it was my first time to be in an anthology. And I hate that that's sort of um, stained a little now because of all that. Mm-hmm. It's still one of my favorite things I've ever written. It wasn't the first thing published because you know how sometimes things are accepted in different orders mm-hmm. published. Right. But um, it was the first acceptance. And my husband, who co-wrote uh, the Bigfoot book with me, mm, he right. threw me an ex- uh a publication party. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> and my whole family came. I have an enormous family. Yeah, we're we're um, Cajun and Czech and just sort of crazy mm. a lot. And we're huge. And it's, one of my brothers stood up and read the story. And mm. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> so embarrassed. I, 
I don't like a lot of attention like that. Um, but it, I, I realize how lucky I am to have such a supportive family because a lot mm-hmm. of people don't. I get that. Um, yeah, I'm the same. Like I, what I like to say about my parents is uh, I don't think they get it particularly <laughs> yeah. they just kind of go with it you know it's just like <laughs> okay well that's that's you <laughs> you know my dad's very much an engineer you know he's he's got uh you know he's the type of guy who like he, he likes to read popular mechanics and all that stuff <laughs> so i think i'm just like a big mystery to him but he's kind of like he seems more like amused by it than bothered by it so that's funny well, yeah, that story. So the story in isolation is called Flap. I just reread it today. I'd read it when it came out. And I'd forgotten how effective that story is. So do you want to just give, like, it's a very simple story, but you want to just give a little setup for it? Yeah, it's, um, I love apocalyptic stuff, zombie kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And it's two women, uh, they're married, and mm-hmm. they had gone camping on this island. I live on a coast, and there's all sorts of little places you can take canoes to and things, little marshes and inlets. Right. And they happen to be there when the apocalypse hit and couldn't go anywhere mm-hmm. uh, sort of the the mainland had zombies on it yeah. um, and it's a sort of them slowly starving to death but with the noises of the zombies in the background it's so. um the there's something about the fact that they're so close to shore mm-hmm. uh, like it's clear that they can look over i don't even know how many feet away it would be but it felt like you know maybe a soccer field's length or something and yeah. they're looking at this beach that's just overrun by zombies and they're stuck on what feels like like a little sandbar or something yeah and that's that's kind of in my head kind of what it was but of course they had there had to be ground for them to have a tent but um yeah about basically that sort of second sandbar at low tide kind of thing mm-hmm yeah, I think what what really makes that story work because it is it's a very simple setup, but and it's a very short story. It's one of the shorter ones I think in that book. But you know, you you give us enough of the atmosphere with the zombies and particularly the sound of what's going on on the uh, shore. But you really just keep us focused on these two women who clearly love each other. They're stuck in this horrible situation, and one of them is kind of on the verge of giving up, and the other one is sort of trying to hang on to some hope. And you know, it's just it's a very like for an apocalyptic zombie story, it's very quiet <laughs> and very like you know since. I guess I would say I I was really like I said I'd read it at the time and I remember being impressed with it at the time and kind of making note of you as someone I wanted to like read more of your stuff and then going back and rereading it I was thank you that means a lot yeah so that was your first published story uh first anthology first accepted uh, oh, first, first sold, published right. was um siren's call oh okay and what story was that oh, I don't think about that. no god no sorry it wasn't siren's call it was um i have a terrible memory uh <laughs> it was bookends review was oh, the okay first thing yeah um siren's call closely followed it so it's, it all a lot happened in the same time frame mm-hmm. but uh bookends review are great people they do a lot of literary stuff and at the time i wasn't sure what genre i wanted to write but they they do great stuff over there and it's free to submit and it's free to read so okay yeah i'll have to check them out i'm not familiar with them mm-hmm. so you said uh you weren't sure what genre right was was writing kind of like new for you or is it something that you had pursued but maybe hadn't you know kind of seriously kind of what would the word be you know turned it into a career or was this something you've been working out for a long time well what kind of what's your history with <laughs> Just it's, with writing. I feel like I don't, you know, um, I don't belong because I, I haven't wanted to be a writer since I was a fetus. 
<laughs> like, like most writers. A lifelong reader, mm. voracious reader. Grew up on my mom's Stephen King books, of course, like everyone mm. else. Right. And I guess I started a book club with a friend locally and we would meet at the bar and we would drink and, and talk mm. about the books. And I remember a few times thinking, well, you know, I, I hated the book, uh, but they wrote a book <laughs> and I didn't. So what do I know? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to see if I could write a book. <laughs> which is a horrible mm. way to go about it. I knew <laughs> nothing about what I was doing. I, I Googled, I watched YouTube videos, I read books and mm. joined some writer groups and did some contests and making a group of friends to start was it was a big help because you've got, you know, your beta readers and, right. and things like that built into those groups. But no, it was about 28, was it 2018? I started writing, trying to write a book and that was Come yeah. Join the Murder. Right. And... About halfway through that, I stopped and wrote some short stories mm -hmm. um, and tried to get those published. So I sort of learned how to write a book by writing a book. And, and I do not <laughs> recommend that to anyone listening. Well, that's I want to come back to Come Join the Murder in a little bit. But that's kind of amazing to me because that book, like that feels like a very polished book. For not only for that to be your first novel, but also like kind of the first thing it sounds like you really seriously wrote like that's pretty amazing <laughs> <laughs> thank you um I got pretty lucky a, a, a publisher a small publisher got it mm -hmm. and then when I got the rights back uh, it's now with Dark Ink okay uh, yeah who Rebecca used to uh work with right I love them I'll always keep it with them and yeah I, I think you know the editors do a great job with things so I can't take much credit there but as far <laughs> as it being polished but well, I mean, just just as far as like the story structure and and the character dynamics, it, it it's a very self assured. I know, like, I have a novel that I finished uh, the first draft of. Oh, probably probably finished the first draft in 2019. I'd been working on it for a decade. Mm -hmm. And um, I've gone back and looked at it. And I think it's, you know, it's definitely something I want to like, keep doing something with, but it, you know, it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, I kind of changed course story wise about halfway through without oh. really like, as one does, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's going to take like a lot of work. So for something like come join the murder, like I said, I want to, I want to circle back around do it talk about it a little more in depth but that i mean it's just it's a very you know the way it's paced the the way it builds to this conclusion that's pretty devastating is yeah. it feels very like like i said just very self-assured for thank you yeah it started off very different there was going to be a hitchhiker and there were all mm. sorts of other things it so it it ended up being something totally different than what I started off. But like I said, I was learning as I went and I think I applied like four different plotting techniques and things to it. It was, it was way overthought. Um, I mean, I guess since, since we're talking about it, I might as well just talk about it. I, I was going to kind of hold it off a little bit. So give us kind of the set. So this is your first novel. It came out mm -hmm. in 2020. Is that correct? I have notes here because I forget so much. Um, <laughs> I think I looked it up and that's what it said at least. Yeah, it did. 2020. I was, I turned 40 that year and that's when it came out. Give us kind of the, the setup for the readers, anyone who hasn't read it yet. For Come Join the Murder? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there is child death. Mm -hmm. So if that's a thing that gets under people's skin, maybe don't read it. Mm -hmm. I've had some funny, you know, you try not to read reviews and I've had one person give it like a one star that a ah, kid died. I'm like, it's literally on the back cover. Right. Like, it's not a surprise. <laughs> I tell you. Yeah. But um, yeah. So it opens with a woman named Rebecca. My favorite mm. book. One of my favorite books is Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. 
Mm. And so that's mm. why I right. named the character that. A little homage. Yeah, yeah. Her husband and child are missing. They mm-hmm. shortly find the vehicle they were in and the son's body. He was part four. I think he's I think he's four in the book. Of I should know this, but yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's basically, he's a little bit older than the toddlers. I think it was about a yeah. year ago that I read it. So Yeah. And I try not to reread my stuff because it drives me nuts. But um, <laughs> yeah, so they find his body and the police don't have a lot to go on. But when she was on the phone with her husband the night before, he mentioned a van pulling up mm-hmm. and it's a white van and it, it needs work. And mm-hmm. he thought it was someone from AAA. Right. So that's all she has. That's all the police have to go on. And so she sort of becomes a vigilante trying to get revenge and tries to find people who drive these vans and figure out if they're the one. And mm-hmm. it's told in dual perspectives with her and the bad guy who actually did it. So mm-hmm. you know right away what happened and who did it. Yeah. I like that. I like kind of starting at the end where instead of trying to find that like mystery throughout, right. You're you're more like watching them dance. Exactly. And- That's a really great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly and- as and I don't want to spoil I would talk a little circumspect about it, but he kind of becomes aware of what of her search for him. Yeah. So then there really is this kind of dual cat and mouse aspect to it. Yeah. And it's It's this whole, what are we all capable of, given the right circumstances? We're not that far removed from the people a lot of us snub our noses at. You know, Mm -hmm. I would never do that. You know, I'm a mom. I would most definitely do some things to Mm -hmm. someone who hurt my child. Yeah. Unless, you know, you're the cops listening to this. And I would never. Um, (laughs) Right. Um, but I like the I like the duel. He was a lot. Uh, James was a lot more fun to write for me. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed writing him and his friend. And then yeah, there's I don't have to explain it. You do get the child's death scene multiple times and how she envisions it mm-hmm. happening. So I get how that could be hard for some people to read. Right. And I did kill a dog, and I'm so sorry. And I'll never yeah. do that again. <laughs> I love I w- yeah, I will say like as a dog lover myself who does not have any children the dog i think probably affected me the most Um, but i mean that's uh that's pretty typical for me (laughs) you know i will say i'll admit it was a bit of a cop-out i was trying to make this guy seem terrible Mm -hmm. and and then what's the way to you know have him kill kids and dogs and that's now it seems like a bit of a cop-out to make him do that um now there's definitely through the years i've learned other ways of making someone bad i mean i guess i can see what you're saying but like from my perspective reading it you know his character james's character and i'm you know it's not really a spoiler because i mean it's the first chapter is him in the aftermath of what he's just done with this this double murder i mean he is one of the most sublimely hateful characters i've read (laughs) in a long time and what makes him such a great villain is he is a pure sociopath like he in the sense that he doesn't have a sense of consequences it's just whatever's easiest for him at any given moment and he justifies it to himself and it's and it's and so with the killing of the dog and we don't need to go into details but it's his rationalization of why 
you know, and and particularly in his mind, helping out his mother. Yeah, so he's a good guy. He's just trying to help his mom. Exactly. It's <laughs> it's that disconnect, and you do a mirroring thing with Rebecca, where as she, and again, I don't want to get too detailed. I, I really want people to read the book. I thought it was an excellent book, and I just reread it um, in preparation for this, and oh, was wow. um, you know kind of like rereading Flap. I was like, oh, well, this is even better than I remembered it being. <laughs> um, but you you do a mirroring thing with her whereas she kind of gets into this mission of vengeance trying to find the person who murdered her family we see a similar thing with her for different reasons she kind of loses the ability to process consequences mm-hmm. for, of mm-hmm. her actions you know they're very different people but then we kind of see how they kind of end up in a similar trajectory and I guess that's all I want to <laughs> say about it without without spoiling anything and and it was set where I grew up, mm-hmm. the intercoastal canal um, underneath that bridge. That was the the big bridge we always took on our way to the beach. You get to the top of that and you see, you know, the beach mm-hmm. expanded out in front of you. So I definitely pulled that write what you know thing as far as uh, location and mm-hmm. Southern things and tried to pull from that. And I liked making her an unlikable character. I wanted to have an unlikable protagonist and a likable antagonist. That's interesting. Because she was, you know, she was, I hate, so sexist. She was a nag. Um, She didn't (laughs) love her child. She loved her child. She didn't like him. She didn't (laughs) like her husband. They got on her nerves. As people do. <laughs> I didn't find her unlikable. I found, okay. and and when you say that, uh, you you know, making him likable, he's got a charm to him. But I think I've known enough. Certainly, I have not known multiple murderers like him. But like, <laughs> just just the asshole who just nothing is ever their fault. <laughs> yeah. Like, so I didn't find him particularly likable. I found <laughs> him really fun to read <laughs> because fun. he is such a he's such a, a horrible person. But you know. Oh, he had a horrible childhood too. Mm-hmm. And 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 you do give us, you know, you humanize him. He's not he's not a comic book villain. And it, you know, his relationship with his mother is there is something like there's a genuine tenderness there, which is interesting. And you make her this kind of, you know, on one level, she could be kind of pathetic, you know, she's, you know, she's like a you know, heavy smoker. She's she's at least I interpret it as being like very overweight, you know, mm-hmm. like obese. To the point where, like, it hindered her ability to get around. Yeah, exactly. Like, like she's just, like, an unhealthy person with an unhealthy attachment to her son and this, like, inability to impress upon him any sense of consequences. You know, she's, yeah. she's coddled him. So, like, you know, on one level, you know, you could say, okay, well, she's kind of pathetic, but then you never lose her humanity either. Like, and that's why I say, like, the book feels very self-assured in that way and that I felt like you understood each of these people. Wow. And when we get to Rebecca, Rebecca, you know, we have James's idea of Rebecca from literally looking at her photograph from a wallet, <laughs> right? Yeah. And he imprints this whole like, um, oh, she's way too hot for this guy that I just killed. Like, I did her a favor, you know. <laughs> And then when we get her, it's like, we see like, no, she was really frustrated with her husband and she was often annoyed with her son. And, you know, these are all things that could be make her unlikable. But I think you walk this line of where it feels very human. You know, I've known enough parents to know that, like, sometimes your kids are a pain in the ass. <laughs> sometimes your spouse is, like, disappointing you for various reasons. It doesn't mean you don't love them. 
doesn't mean you want bad things to happen to them. And so that sense of guilt, because she was so kind of dismissive of them in some way. And she was focused on her career. And Mm -hmm. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm at the tail end of it. But Mm -hmm. I I was raised where women are taught to go get everything, right? But then Mm -hmm. the traditional gender roles were still pretty heavy. Right. So it's one of those, you can't win. Something Mm -hmm. is always going to... Something's going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's she's prioritized her career and kind of neglected her relationships with her husband and son. Mm-hmm. But it's always that idea of like, well, I'll have time later, kind of, you yeah. know. And then of course she doesn't. And and it's that sense of guilt that's hanging over her, I think really keeps her grounded as as a very human character. It's a brutal book. And rereading it, and brutal, I mean not like it's not super gory or anything. It's got its moments of violence, obviously. But just thematically, it's a really like it's a it's a gut punch of a book. Thank you. I it's still my favorite. Um when I'm at conventions, I push it hard when anyone's at the mm-hmm. table. I'm like this this is my favorite. This is the one I want people to read. Yeah. Well I think it's it's a really it's really excellent. And I I mean how uh, I guess I'm curious. So you said it came out from a small publisher and then it's now but has it been re-released on Dark Ink? Yeah. The small publisher was close to the bone. They're out of Okay. The- yeah. Craig runs that. Uh, Super Mm -hmm. nice. We still have a good relationship. He also first published uh, Easton Falls Massacre. Okay. Yeah. And then I got rights back to both and self-published Easton Falls and Parachute Mm -hmm. after that. But I'm leaving Come Join the Murder with Dark Ink. And I I like self-publishing. I like the control. I like getting more of the profits. Um, But there's certain publishers I'm willing to give that up for. And Dark Ink Mm -hmm. is one of them, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting. I just taught, you know, Bridget Nelson, I think, right? Uh, I I don't know if I've ever met her in person. I Like just from social media. Right, right. Really right. nice. Um, well, I, I just spoke with her recently too. Her episode's actually going to come out. It's the next one after yours. Oh, cool. And we talked a lot about the self-publishing versus more traditional mm-hmm. publishing route. And because, you know, I'm I'm in the process of, I have a story collection and I'm kind of sitting on it right now. Uh, Rebecca Roland has read it and has given me some notes on it. And I'm kind of hemming and hawing between the, do I try to put it out myself or do I go to a publisher? You know, I, I have some relationships with some publishers I think I could approach. From your perspective, like just which, well, what are, what are sort of the, some of the pluses and minuses of each route, do you think? I will say, and you know, it always all depends on what you're wanting out of things, but mm-hmm. as a lifelong reader, of course, it'd be great to get, you know, a big five or big four, whatever it is now deal mm-hmm. and be featured on these things and have them right. push it. But that's a unicorn. It's, it yeah. does not happen often. Right. And I like to write. It's fun. It's fun to put my ideas down. It's fun to talk to other writers and mm-hmm. make these friends and make these connections. And I just want to get my stuff out there. So I sort of kind of compromised where I go wide, I publish mm-hmm. wide through Ingram Spark, and I go through Amazon, of course. Mm-hmm. because I want to be in libraries. I want a bookstore to be able to, to get my book, but that does mean you get less money. Mm-hmm. It's not, you're not going to get rich most of right. the time, right. but I like knowing as a lifelong library person, like I love knowing that my books are in libraries if they want them, that those options are there. Cause I still use my library apps all the time on my right. phone. But as far as it's a little hard, I will say, I did leave a writer group, the the first one I joined, when I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, I was leaning more literary and more Mm -hmm. traditionally published. They were definitely focused on that. And that Mm -hmm. was sort of their bar for success. 
Yeah. And so it wasn't a good fit for me anymore. Mm-hmm. But so you just have to kind of figure out what success means. And to me, it's just having my book available in all these places as much as I can. Yeah. That way, if anyone, you know, maybe it'll go viral one day or something (laughs) and then bookstores can order it, but it's definitely either way, you're not making that much money. I I think it's despicable that authors get 10% from big publishing deals in most publishing houses, even the mid-sized publishing houses. Yeah. That's that's terrible. We do all the work. (laughs) You you, you get more with self-publishing. I'm a bit of a control freak. Mm -hmm. I like having final say on covers and on uh, the text and all of that stuff. I like knowing that if I see a mistake, I can immediately go fix it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's done. Anything printed after that will be fixed. Right. I don't have to wait on a publisher. I don't have to wait on a book designer. Mm. That I can do that all myself. And and I like that um, control. Well, it seems like, you know, it's interesting because you're ta- talking about the distinction between kind of literary publishing and then publishing in the horror world. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I've always really considered myself a horror writer. I, I've never been like, um, <laughs> I've never told myself like, oh, I'm aiming for a Pulitzer or anything. <laughs> it'd be interesting to like talk to people who are more uh, I guess focused on different genres and see how it is there because it really does seem like in the horror world you know I had started as a horror writer back in the 90s I think we're probably about the same age within you know a very short window probably I was very focused on you know submitting short story you know as a teenager submitting short stories to all the horror mag weird tales all those you know and I and at the time there was like four or five places you could submit there was really not much in terms of the internet at the time Mm -hmm. and as far as getting like a book out there I had no idea even where to start and then I kind of you know moved off into the film world for a while. And when I came back around to fiction writing, this is probably 2015, 2016, and got really serious about it around 2000, around, it sounds like around the time you did, around 2018, it seemed like the world had completely changed with uh-huh. ebooks, with all these small press, horror presses out there that people are really reading. So there's a, there's an indie, there's this whole indie world that didn't, <laughs> quite exist i think back in the day yeah um and it gives us opportunities because i'm i'm with you i agree with you know i would love to get on get in some big publisher <laughs> have you know new york times bestseller all of that um <laughs> but you said for most of us that's a unicorn and you can't hold that as like your your standard because you'll never be happy ever. yeah you're always chasing something and this is one thing i learned from my years in the film industry is like you're always kind of chasing something and you're always waiting for someone to give you permission to do stuff yeah and like, i don't do well with authority no, <laughs> I don't either, which is why after a while I was like, I think I need to like get back to my roots because this is not really working the yeah. way I want it to. I think horror definitely lends itself to indie because you can you can explore so much more. Um, you can push boundaries. You can write what you don't care about, you know, having someone approve it. You can just write what you want to write. And right. it definitely benefits from a short form, I think, because mm-hmm. the more brutal stuff you don't want to spend five hours with. Right. <laughs> that's true. So I, I think indie, I think novellas, I think that's just, that's horror's sweet spot. Yeah. A horror is always... Stephen King. I've got a lot of his stuff behind me, but... Sure. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, horror is always, you know, of all the, all the different kind of genres horror really lives in the short story in a way that i think Uh 
it's harder with like science fiction or fantasy where there's so much world building. Yeah. You know, a lot of times horror, it's like you just introduce a couple characters and then have something weird happen, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and you, you don't, don't need to explain it. And, yeah. yeah. And I don't know if it was your your podcast, someone was mentioning the endings where the short story horrors uh, can be a little not as concrete in their endings as mm-hmm. the long form tends to be we can mm-hmm. we can leave a lot unsaid and a lot to the imagination and a lot of times I'm like what did I just read <laughs> but <laughs> right. then I'll reread it and I'm like this is brilliant you know one well, I think and the nice thing about this kind of indie horror world that I've found you know having kind of gotten a little bit involved in the community and mm-hmm. you know there's a real you know, it used to be, you know, there were those of us who are fans and maybe we wanted to be writers and we're submitting stuff and it's going out into the ether and disappearing, you know. And then you're reading Weird Tales and there's all these names of all these authors that you keep seeing over and over and they feel so far removed from you. Yeah. You know, how am I ever going to be, you know, at the level that these people are? Now it's the fan community and the writer community have all kind of merged and it's all sort of part of this horror bookstagram thing. Everyone mostly, with some exceptions, we've had our controversies (laughs) in this. (laughs) Um, But for the most part, it seems like everyone's kind of rooting for everybody else, you know? Like it's overall just this very supportive, Mm -hmm. really does feel like a community, which has been... yeah. Like a nice discovery for me. I will say that's what I liked the most when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to write. I like shock, right? Everyone likes Mm -hmm. shock and awe. And I like the community of the horror genre. Um, Like you said, it's, they're not, they're, for the most part, they're not pretentious. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to win literary awards. We're just trying Mm -hmm. to tell fun stories. And that's all, that's all we need. Yeah. And everyone's, you know, it's, it it seems like I've read stuff because I don't tend to write a lot of, super hardcore horror stuff Mm -hmm. extreme horror you know uh dabble with it here and there but it's always amazing me and i think of you know when we talk about it in our conversation which will be coming out in the next episode with bridget you know bridget's much more like she's an extreme horror writer yeah yeah and like she is the nicest person in the world (laughs) you know so like just that dichotomy between what people think we're like versus what we're like and when you get in this community with we're all a bunch of like-minded weirdos you know it just like I said, everyone seems to be kind of on each other's side and sort of rooting for everybody, you know. And I think there's like, there's that safety in the darkness of not mm-hmm. being dark yourself. It's, yeah. you can dabble in it and you can play and it's it's sort of voyeurism and it's sort of, um what is the uh people who like bungee jump and it's like the, the thrill seeking it's it's that without any thrill to life or limb yeah it's like the danger junkie without actual danger adrenaline <laughs> junkie that's what, yeah adrenaline junkie yeah yeah we're that and in a much safer way <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think there's a lot of truth to that yeah mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what I've told people, because I think, I think I'm a pretty nice guy. I try to be. <laughs> and, and I have had over the years, people be surprised by that because they've read stuff of mine or they've seen my movies. And then they meet me and like, oh, you're a lot friendlier than I thought you would be. <laughs> and I always say that like, the reason I'm able to be like a sort of nice, friendly person, I think is because I get all the other shit out in the right. Yeah. I will say I read um Egg. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, was it Hellbound books? Involved? It's in Hellbound. Yeah, so I loved it. It's so <laughs> bizarre and gross and great. <laughs> Uh, just to give people so it's a story of mine it's in uh anthology of splatterpunk it just came out from hellbound books it's one of the more splatterpunky things Mm -hmm. i've written and it's about this guy who 
in some ways, I think I had fun with Dale the way you did with James and come mm-hmm. join the murder because he's a really bad guy. Like he's mm-hmm. he's a biker, he's a gun runner, he's a he's a drug, he's a drug dealer. Kinda. Very sons of yeah. I mean, I think anyone who reads that story knows I was a Sons of Anarchy fan. <laughs> but you know, he's a biker. He's in Southern Colorado. He's got a girlfriend who he's like annoyed with because she's sort of you know she used to be a lot of fun and like now she's kind of like he thinks of her as kind of this wet blanket. Mm-hmm. He gets up one morning. She's sick. He's annoyed with her because he's sick. He goes into work. <laughs> <laughs> and then he comes home and, and discovers that she's laid an egg uh, while he was like, <laughs> she's like that came out of me <laughs> yeah it's like that came out of me exactly <laughs> and um and then i don't i'll just leave it there <laughs> where it goes from there i'll let you guys discover but uh yeah that was well i'm glad to hear that you liked it because that's one I, I definitely wrote that one and i was like okay i don't know where that came from <laughs> Uh. <laughs> you mentioned sons of anarchy um that's why come join the murder is titled what it is we were big fans mm. of sons of anarchy we were watching the series when i was writing it and you know the song the the white buffalo yeah yeah yeah. and so that's why i changed the main character's name to crow so it kind of fit because i didn't know what oh. to, i wanted to call it the drowning of oliver hansen that was their original last name but there was mm-hmm. a very similar titled book out at the time okay so I couldn't, couldn't name it that but Oh uh, yeah, uh, Sons of Anarchy is brutal and beautiful, and mm-hmm. such a Shakespearean tragedy, and it's right. That's such a good show. Yeah, well, and I, lo- you know, I think, and I would imagine you're from you're in the Houston area, right? Uh, just south of Houston, yeah, and not Galveston, but more south. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, and then I'm, you know, I'm in New Mexico, so we're in these. Okay. These are states you know and then you think of like sons of anarchy as northern california Uh i've spent a lot of time in colorado and arizona like these are kind of biker states Uh and like i'm definitely not a biker i'm not trying to claim any sort of connection to that Uh world but it's sort of like just the other day i was driving up to santa fe to meet up with my parents for lunch and a bunch of banditos which is like our version of the hell's angels here mm-hmm. a bunch of banditos on a run just went by me and i was like oh there they go <laughs> who knows what they're up to <laughs> and i uh my dad was a big uh harley fan he mm-hmm. custom built uh, a bike and used a harley engine but he's a welder by trade and so he did all the braiding of the metal mm-hmm. and so i grew up riding with him and mm-hmm. i mean not all the time but uh if mom's listening but <laughs> my husband ryan uh was a big fan he had a harley for a little while mm. and it would drive him crazy because when i would ride on the back i wouldn't hold on like, <laughs> i know how i know how to ride bitch i lean yeah. with you on the turns i know what to do and yeah you don't need to be like holding him he, like that. Yeah. it drove him nuts he's like no put your arms around me <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I'm definitely not scared of them. But it's it, there's a it's a rush. It's like you're flying. Mm-hmm. It's like riding a horse that's like full speed running. It feels like you're mm-hmm. flying. Yeah, my dad used to ride when I was a kid. He kind of stopped. Well, I was pretty young, but he had a he had a BSA, mm-hmm. and he would uh, my mom I think she had like a little Honda or something, and we would all go around the Hamez Mountains back behind uh, where okay. I grew up. Um, and just we would call it boondocking we would go off on these dirt roads (laughs) on motorcycles and uh, I remember I would always be sitting either in front of my mom or usually in front of my dad I just remember my dad's arms kind of coming past me holding on the handlebars and then sitting there (laughs) yeah it was uh 
it was a lot of fun. I, I'm not I'm not sure why he quit. He he oh. ended up putting the the bikes back in the shed behind the house, and they kind of sat there for couple decades i think anybody um who values you know their life (laughs) (laughs) maybe maybe just at some point was like yeah maybe i've outgrown this i don't know especially in the last you know few decades with the cell phones being so prevalent and people do not pay attention Mm -hmm. they're stupid and uh, it's not that you don't trust the the rider you don't trust everyone else well one thing that definitely uh i lived in l.a I've lived in LA off and on, and I don't know how it is around where you are, but LA, it's legal for the motorcycles to go between the cars. It is that here too, yeah. It's terrifying. <laughs> I don't think they should, but yeah. it is legal. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we'll be, you know, I'll be on the 101, and it's like bumper to bumper traffic, all going about 70 miles an hour, and then here goes a bunch of crotch rockets in between us, and it's just like, Jesus. yeah, no. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I'm glad to hear you like that story. It was one that I felt I was pretty proud of, but I was like, wow, this is one of the more unlikable characters I've written. So I, I hope people <laughs> enjoy it. She laid an egg. I mean, how could you not like that? <laughs> yeah. So you were talking about how you were kind of going between this idea of, you know, pursuing more like literary. When we say literary, I mean, it's like a genre, I guess. Yeah. And then more like the horror stuff. What what do you think it was that kind of steered you more in the horror direction? Well, and I, so most of what I would consider the literary stories that I wrote that I, I still love, I just can't do, really do anything else with them now that I've veered over here. Mm-hmm. But it most of it veered around death and grief. Oh. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm already writing this, let's just lean <laughs> in. <laughs> yeah. Just go take it that just, next step. Yeah, to a step where it would no longer fit in this category, but I could have a lot more fun with it. And so you were, I'm assuming you were like a horror fan before that? I mean, you said you're a Stephen King fan, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely read my mom Stephen King's growing up, some of the Mm -hmm. first books I read. And she she had uh, our coffee table books or that were scattered on the coffee table were a lot of true crime about mothers who killed their children. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> Looking back is odd. And if she's listening to this, she knows she's weird. <laughs> but it makes you, you know, sleep with an eye open. <laughs> but it's one of those, it's shocking, you know. Um, comedy's good. Horror comedy's fun, too. But there's something uh, appealing about shocking people. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you don't. You don't put gore and things in just to shock. You want to have the story. You want to have the characterization and the motives. But I love when someone says something was so fucked up or can Mm -hmm. I say, can I cuss? I I love when someone says that because it's like, okay, like I did my job (laughs) because they can get the other stuff anywhere. And I want to be, I've got so many stories in my head that I want to get out and some I'm hesitant about because they're even a little too much for me. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but there's just something about horror that, like you said, it's it's towing that line and it's it's getting that adrenaline, even writing it. Mm-hmm. And when I when I wrote "Come Join the Murder" to get in the headspace of this grieving mother, I yeah. watched hours of videos of mothers grieving. Mm. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking because it put me in a really bad headspace. Sure, I can imagine as a mother yourself. Yeah, and I'd have to go watch a happy show or something mm. afterwards, but I don't do that anymore. That was not good for, <laughs> yeah. for anyone. No. And and come join the murder, and I mentioned it in the acknowledgments. 
my son almost drowned like three times mm. when he was a child none of which he was not with me mm. i watched my child yeah. <laughs> it was grandpa and it was other people but mm. but still he fell yeah. in a he was he was like two and he was with his grandpa fishing in a bayou mm. and i don't know if you're familiar with bayous i don't know if they have those in new mexico no Everybody, <laughs> yeah visibility yeah. shit they're just mud yeah. and he fell out of the boat and there's alligators and things which i'm not scared of those that, that wasn't a big deal but he couldn't see him and he only found him by reaching down and feeling his hair and pulling him Oof. up and i was like what if you hadn't <laughs> yeah oh. that's terrifying so this child drowning is is sort of the worst thing i could when i was trying to write mm-hmm. it was like oh what's the worst that could happen Right. And I think I even put in the acknowledgement something like, thanks to Ethan for, you know, giving me the idea of what's the worst thing that could happen. Mm-hmm. They And he took swim lessons from early on. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, yeah. and I'm terrified of the water in general. Really? Yeah. It's just, I've always had kind of a phobia of the water. I, you know, and I grew up in the mountains and, you know, live in the desert now and oh. sort of happy that there are no big large bodies of water nearby when i lived in california and would go by the like i love looking at the ocean but Mm -hmm. if i would like think about it too much it would freak me out that much water so the idea of drowning has always been like that's pretty much my biggest fear so the way you handled it and come join the murder you know because you know we know that something terrible happened to oliver and i'm forgetting is it john is his father's name i think so yeah yeah Oliver and John. Oliver's the young boy. John is his father. Yeah. We know something terrible happened, but we don't really know exactly what happened. And so we're stuck with Rebecca as she keeps contemplating these different scenarios. And we finally, at the very end, get what's probably, although I think there's some room for interpretation, what's Mm -hmm. probably close to the true story. And each one is just as horrifying. Each possibility is as horrifying as the last, you know, because they all end in the same place. I think that's a thing about being, you know, I, I'm with you in that, like, I like to shock people. I like to disturb people. I like it when someone reads something of mine and then is, like, upset about it later. Yes. <laughs> and I'm not sure what that, it's just like a mischievous, you know, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> there's something, I think, in those of us who are drawn to horror that, like, we just naturally contemplate these worst case scenarios and so like if we're gonna do it anyway we might as well do something creative Mm -hmm. i want to talk a little bit about a couple other of your short stories because you have a couple really interesting ones so one i just read uh recently it's from american cannibal all edited by rebecca roland it's called flesh communion talk about that one a little bit because i have a couple questions about that So Flesh Communion mm-hmm. is uh, the Branch Davidian Waco showdown with the FBI happened in the 90s. I was in junior high at the time and uh, our teacher, social studies teacher, gave us this assignment to how would we resolve this conflict? And we had to write a paper on it. And I got in trouble because I was a kid and I was, you know, uh-huh. I said I would flood it and send sharks in. <laughs> and I failed the paper. <laughs> but it's Sounds always- like we probably would have been friends if we agreed up because i was always <laughs> doing stuff like that too. <laughs> but i i distinctly remember it all happening and living here where i live waco is still stands for we ain't coming out mm. they say the waco yep. and that the branch to the end still have a functioning commune there right which i didn't realize until i think i saw a documentary on that recently and was like 
I didn't realize yeah. that was still around. Isn't that crazy? And and I get I get the frustration with the FBI. They had just had some issues uh killing I can't remember the guy's name. It was but... um Ruby Ridge, and I'm forgetting yes, the guy's yes, I'm forgetting the guy's uh Weaver, Randy Weaver. Yeah, and so they definitely were trying to have this, you know, high profile thing, mm. which is why they invited supposedly the, the TV crews to come in and witness this great thing they were gonna be doing, yeah. and it just blew up in their faces. Right. But as far as who fired first, that's sort of always the classic no one knows. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence that says who did what. Right. So it, that's hard to, to pin, but they should have just come out. Like, I yeah. don't, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say, I don't want to victim blame, but yeah, I mean, it was a cult. It was, yeah. this guy was crazy yeah. and his followers weren't thinking clearly and it's, it's sad. Well, what What's interesting about, and, and I, I don't want to spoil it and it's, you know, it's obviously, it's it's newly released. So I'm not sure how many people have had a chance to read it yet. But for all of you listening, if you have not read American Cannibal yet, you ought to go get that. Because that's a really great collection. It's so good. And it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, so well done. it's just so well done. It's well cared. I mean, Rebecca is such a great editor. So she is just a really great collection of stories. What I love that you did with Flesh Communion is there are so many questions around Waco. Mm-hmm. And around what happened, like you said, who shot first? How did the fire start? All these things. Mm-hmm. So everyone's speculating. Everyone's got their. We're all trying to fill in the blanks. So you go ahead and fill in the blanks with <laughs> some. You took it in just this really wild, unexpected direction. Which, and I wanted to ask: Was that purely like your imagination, or was that any of that? Is that based on rumor or anything, or was it? Clearly, you just no. kind of going like, what's the most fucked up way I could explain this? <laughs> and, and this isn't spoilers because it is called American Cannibal, mm-hmm. but um, they were vegetarians. Right. They, uh, historically or whatever, they, um, so that wasn't, to me, that wasn't based on any truth. But for years, I've had this idea of a preacher doing a sort of flesh communion mm-hmm. of, you know, because it's, it's ripe for it. Yeah. You know, you eat my flesh and you drink my blood and it's right there. Right. And Midnight Mass did it so beautifully. Yes. Uh, it was one of my my favorite things that is yeah it was it was great like, who thought to take it there yeah like, i'm i'm like right on the verge of canceling my netflix subscription because i almost never use it but i'm kind of hanging on to it just because i want to go back and rewatch midnight mass <laughs> yeah. yeah so i was always sort of very interested in that i've got some background in religion i was a sunday school teacher mm. for a while and i'm now atheist and so that journey was was very interesting mm, interesting yeah so i have and i was paid staffer so i have a lot of background and uh, behind the curtain views of how certain things are run right. and i just love the idea of eating real flesh for that sort of communion mm-hmm. um and so that's I, I finally found the perfect vehicle for it when that call you know came out yeah well, i really loved i loved where because as the story was progressing i was like she's not gonna like there's no way we're gonna and i was like oh no yep that's where we're going <laughs> and for uh, i guess for your listeners um it's it's an interview format right it's like a- almost purely dialogue mm-hmm. which i love doing i love dialogue so much i'm way more comfortable with dialogue than i am descriptions and so she's being this woman's being interviewed by the police mm-hmm. or detectives or fbi or whoever i think it was fbi and trying to figure out what happened mm-hmm. and she's gone and going through it and and her story is I, let's just say it's not the canonical story we've all heard about <laughs> and actually no. and i one thing i love is that because you do go so uh speculative with it mm-hmm. you also do 
give room for us to kind of wonder if she's an unreliable narrator. You know, it's it's yeah. it's very much like you leave it kind of an open question. And I really enjoyed it. Thank that. you. Yeah. Thank you. It was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, that was it was a lot of fun to read. And <laughs> and you know, I'm fascinated by that kind of history too. You know, we were talking about Ruby Ridge. Because I actually yeah. have a short story. It's in um The Cellar Door, Volume One, uh, the Woodland Terrors anthology from Dark Peninsula Press. But I have a short story called Blisters, which is a kind of my riff on the Ruby Ridge situation. Really? I'll have to look it up. But then taking it into like a real horror direction. Yeah. Kind of cosmic yeah. horror kind of direction so i love the idea of taking these you know because i think one thing and you know we've all we've all written these characters um but it's the stephen king thing of writing the normal character quote unquote and then putting them in a crazy situation it's like the typical Mm -hmm. small town horror thing Mm -hmm. every so often it's fun though to be like let's take a character from some fringe you know subculture or something and then put them in a crazy situation so like with you know (laughs) my story i took a a Ruby ruby ridge type family with you, mm-hmm. you took the Branch Davidians. And then, like, how, how would someone from this kind of different community react, you know, who maybe doesn't have the same kind of values that we do? Yeah. So you mentioned that you have this history with religion and that you were a Sunday school teacher. And that brings me to a story that I think is one of the most original and interesting stories that I've read in a long time. And I'm forgetting the name of the anthology for some reason. Was edited by Red Lego. It's the <laughs> Nightmare Sky. Nightmare Sky. I was like, I want to. Say, I kept on saying Night Terror, and I knew that that's a whole other different <laughs> Nightmare Sky. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. And your story is called. It's it's all astronomy based horror. Mm-hmm. And your story is called The Star of San Luis. Yeah. Tell us just a little bit about that, because that was. It's interesting now knowing that you have this history with religion, because mm-hmm. there's definitely a biblical element to that story <laughs> so san san louis pa- i live close to well no san louis passes between my county and galveston okay and it's a lot of people drown there all the time mm. it's usually out of towners who don't understand it's too dangerous to swim there the currents are too strong mm. and they they go fishing and and die mm. <laughs> so it's san louis always sort of had this you know thing around it okay with death and and danger um so i thought it was the perfect setting for sort of apocalyptic uh, three wise men. Mm-hmm. It's the biblical story of the three wise men. Right. Uh, they're bringing gifts to their savior, they think, and it's during an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't know uh, what else I could say. Well, I think that, that's a good setup. One thing I love is the, the biblical backdrop, but kind of through the perspective of these three guys who are maybe not the brightest, or the sharpest tools in the shed i even love their names as like malachi gideon and bill (laughs) (laughs) red even joked it was like the three stooges at some point but but like bad guys right like Mm -hmm. not not the nicest smartest people yeah but they've got this you know they're in this apocalypse and i like that you never really explain what the apocalypse is but it's some sort of apocalyptic landscape they have read the signs they believe that they're following the stars San Luis to where they believe their savior has been born. And they're basically reenacting the story of the biblical wise men. Yeah. And then, and again, don't want to spoil anything, but what they find is not... <laughs> it's not... It definitely veers from the biblical story. <laughs> it's some very interesting... And I actually found it 
pretty scary. And I'm not a religious oh. person. Um, I mm-hmm. was not raised as a religious person. I'm Jewish, but you know, pretty secular. And so I'm familiar with that story, but uh, you know, I don't have the deep kind of history with it. But something about I think the mystery, you give us just enough for us to sort of know that what they find is not what they expect to find, but then we don't really quite understand what it is that they find. And it, I, it actually kind of got under my skin, you know, and I don't want to say wow, that's awesome. too much more because I don't want to spoil anything. And that's, that's the cool thing about short stories too, is like, you don't have to describe the apocalypse. Right. You don't have to like hand the reader all these things. You can just sort of sprinkle some stuff and see what happens yeah absolutely and and i felt like you know i've done this i've written a couple apocalyptic stories and one thing i like to try and do is be like give little hints about what might be the cause of it but then give little Uh contradictory hints too so it's like well maybe you know maybe there's not any one thing or or, you know it's not the like oh it's an environmental disaster well maybe it's an environmental disaster but also demons you know it's like you can combine (laughs) things And I like that with that story, it's it, you leave a lot of, it, it, it had almost a feel of like a fable in a way, because there's like a lot okay. of, it felt almost non-literal in a sense. Like hmm. there wasn't like a, uh, you know, straight line I could draw between, no, this thing happened that caused this, you know? Yeah. And there was a kind of a dreamlike quality to to the world itself. I yeah. And and that's because I'm not a believer. I the, uh, Ghosts, stories don't uh, demon things don't they don't they're not scary to me because mm-hmm. i don't believe it right it's it, like that that's like a roach talking like it's not gonna happen right. um so i don't write a lot of it mm-hmm. because it it doesn't scare me and it but uh that one was definitely a little veering off of my normal path but it was it was a lot of fun to write mm-hmm. that's a really i think sometimes i can find that stuff scary because since i was never raised in religion so there's always that sense for me of like but what if i'm wrong like what if i miss (laughs) something what if my parents miss something (laughs) you know yeah yeah and then the last story and then i want to get it uh back into some of your longer stuff um and obviously want to talk about table for three but the last short story i wanted to mention was your story two months too long (laughs) (laughs) that was a that was a really i thought that one was a lot of fun so that's it and again i forgot to write down the name of the anthology found yes it's like found footage horror basically Mm -hmm. Uh, andrew cole and gabino iglesias edited it right 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 Mm -hmm. your (laughs) approach to i guess the concept of found footage i thought was really fun so it's thank you it's basically like a stalker girlfriend story yeah you know it's it's the girl who doesn't take the breakup well and won't leave her ex-boyfriend alone Mm -hmm. but it's all told through text messages and then facebook and then as he's blocking her on his phone then it's facebook messages then she's messaging his mom yeah and his friend and then, and then his then friend police reports. and then it goes into police reports as things escalate <laughs> so gross and and where you go with it and again like i went like i almost want to just be like sorry spoilers because i really like <laughs> but say spoilers let's talk about it <laughs> yeah well maybe we'll spoil this one because it was so just the wildest idea <laughs> So, okay, so we're going to spoil this story. It'll be the only thing we spoil. (laughs) She basically tries to convince him that she's pregnant. And so to Mm -hmm. do that, she raids, it sounds like an abortion clinic. Yes. Or somewhere where abortions have been performed. Takes Mm -hmm. the, like, what sounds like a fetus. Yeah. Shoves it up herself (laughs) to try to (laughs) get the ultrasound image, um, which he doesn't even believe. He's like, he pulled that off of Google 
or something. Well, I think that so that she gave him the sort of fake image first, and he's like, I don't believe that. Oh, I think that's okay. He, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and then she basically gets an infection. I'm assuming like sepsis or something, and then I mean, as one would, <laughs> as one would, and then dies. But it was just like take it's real. I found that story really funny. <laughs> 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 and some of it is her voice of just like her refusal to hear anything he's saying where he's like no we're done i'm not meeting you for sushi to talk it out she's like so she's anyway like, oh, when do you want to meet for sushi <laughs> you know <laughs> um and then you know the way she messages his mom i was actually cackling where she's like no one will love him more than i do not even you even you can't love him as much as i can love him. <laughs> It was just like, because I think we've all known someone who is just like, maybe not quite that far gone, but we've all kind of experienced some version of someone where it's just like, how do you get through to this person? Yeah. Like, how have you lived this far? (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand. You're not listening. Right. So where, where did that, and and why did you take the approach, just the, the um, structural approach that you took with that one? Uh, So the found footage call went out and i was like this looks like fun Mm -hmm. because i think i saw that call and was like i don't even know how i would approach this so i just kind of skipped it yeah and i'm not that big of a fan of found footage Mm -hmm. movies um the shaky camera makes me nauseous Mm -hmm. a little bit sometimes yeah i was i think in high school when Blair Witch came out or maybe just after I'm not sure when it came out didn't love it Mm -hmm. so I'm like okay I I don't want like a camera I don't want um and honestly I think I wrote and submitted that in like a two-day span Mm. because I waited so long so I couldn't think of anything and like I really I love Gabino I love Andy Cole Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be a part of what they were doing yeah and they seem like great guys, great writers. And sometimes, I don't know if you ever do that, like you submit to a call because you love who the editor is. Oh, I do like that a lot. I mean, that was yeah. why I think with that call specifically because of Gabino, like I really mm-hmm. wanted to be in something. He was editing, but I could not come up with and anything. Andrew's Cockroach King. Okay. Did you ever read that? I'm not as familiar with him, no. I'm terrified. of. Oh, so... I like snakes. I've had pet snakes. I don't mind spiders. They eat mosquitoes, mm-hmm. which is mosquito season here. I'm scratching right now. I hate roaches. <laughs> I hate. And that book gave me the heebie-jeebies so bad. <laughs> I just read it you down. I'm going to have to look it up because I'm not familiar. Uh, Cockroach King. Yeah. And I won a, an autographed copy and a giveaway he was doing, but I had already read it. So when I won this giveaway, he said, which book do you want? I was like, definitely Cockroach King. But mm-hmm. No, he, he's great. But now, so I didn't know what I was going to write for that call. I, I knew I wanted to submit something. Yeah. I got this crazy idea and I talked to my husband a lot. I joke that he's my idea guy. I bounce things off of him a lot and he helps me kind of veer towards things that could work. Mm-hmm. But he was kind of a little bit of a loss with this one. He's like, I don't know about that. Mm. My daughter was like, oh, you should definitely go with this idea. This is great. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this disgusting idea. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and um, I used to work as a dispatcher. And so that's why I brought in a lot of like the 911 transcript stuff and like the um 10 codes i don't think cops even use 10 codes anymore oh that's interesting i was gonna ask about that because i thought you know not knowing anything about police reports or anything it was so believable like in the way (laughs) everything you know the police reports are formatted and you know they have reference numbers Uh, i googled yeah what a police report looked like because it's been i had my son uh and then and then left and he's now 20 so it's been that long since i've 
dispatcher but, but you still have that a little bit of that background so you know what rings true yeah so i wanted to use that and then of course all the stuff with abortion rights and things mm-hmm. happening right heavy on on my mind and so i think that's just sort of how it formed did you i mean as because like i said i found it funny but i wasn't sure if i was supposed to find (laughs) it funny (laughs) was that definitely okay she was almost a caricature which wouldn't have worked that's why i had to go so extreme with what she did to make it otherwise it would have just been funny well it felt like of everything of yours that i've read it's the closest to something that is like almost a bizarro story you know, yeah. like, because you really just push the absurdity, both <laughs> yeah. with her character, because everyone else feels very grounded. Mm-hmm. And their reactions to her are just like, God, just leave me alone. Shut up. You know, mm-hmm. like the mom. And the, I love the text message exchange between the mom and the son. She's like, what did you do? Like, who is this woman? <laughs> He's like, Why just block her, mom. Me? Okay, I'll show you how to block her because the mom can't figure it out, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so typical, right? right. <laughs> but everyone else feels so just absolutely realistic. And then she really is kind of just out there. But I think yeah. it's the contrast actually makes her realistic because oh. she is such this just chaos agent, it seems like, in everyone around her's life. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, we've all known oh. someone maybe not that extreme, but who is sort of, you know, gets fixated on something or someone and you can't talk reason to them, you know? No. Yeah. yeah, that was a lot of fun. Okay, I want to talk. I do want to come back to come join the murder just because I did want to talk about I Saw the Devil and how that influenced it. Yeah. Did you watch it? I did. Um, but yes. before we get there, I do want to talk about Parachute because Parachute scared the shit out of me. Really? Yeah, that one. I had already read some of your short fiction. I had already read Come Join the Murder. I had not read Parachute, and I read it in preparation to talk to you. And that actually gave me nightmares. That's one of the few things I've read in a while that's given me nightmares. So talk a little bit about that and where that came from. Parachute started as a NaNoWriMo. Oh, okay. What month was it? Uh, I think it was 2021, November. It's National Uh, Novel Writing Month for anyone who doesn't. Yeah, yeah. and you you try to write a novel in a month, which ends up a novella, right? Because no one can... And uh, it's hard, especially I work full time. Right. And I think their goal is always like 50,000 words, right? Yeah. And, and parachute, it's not a big, I don't know how many pages it is. Um, It's, it's little. Yeah. It's It's maybe a hundred, a hundred some pages, something like that. Yeah. And I loved that game in an elementary school where you throw the giant parachute Mm -hmm. up and you run underneath it and it billows around you. And that was so much fun. And to me, it was like, well, what if they went somewhere else? Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a lot of fun coming up with different places they could go and what could happen. Mm-hmm. And I pulled from a lot of things. Like there's a, there's a bog of sadness similar mm-hmm. to the never ending story. Right. There's, there's time issues similar to the endless movie. That- mm-hmm. Which by the way, you mentioned that I hadn't, I thought I hadn't seen it. And then I looked up and yeah. was like, Oh, I have seen that movie. And that, I can definitely see that influence on that story. Yeah, and that was the main influence on on the time issue with the guy who was running for help. Right, right. But yeah, it, it to me, it was, I was kind of stuck. I don't know what to write next. I have all these ideas. I have all these half-started things, you know, as we do. And I was like, let me just do something for NaNoWriMo, something I've never done. Let me just start new. And I had a lot of fun just kind of going with it and not taking it too seriously mm-hmm. and coming up with wild, crazy things. And I still, you know, I'm like, ah, I should have done this. I should have had them go here and should have maybe expanded it and had them spend more time in the world. But 
I purposely didn't want them to spend a lot of time because you wouldn't, mm-hmm. if you knew how to get out of a dangerous situation, you'd leave it. Right. And, and that I wanted, I like the idea of form impacting how a reader interprets a story, mm. whether it's short sentences or punchy dialogue right. or like short chapters. So I wanted this almost chaotic feel and what just happened kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So where you can't really spend that much time there because you want to keep this chaos in the reader's head. Right. So it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I threw everything yeah. in there. The well, and it is, it, you know, it's funny because it's, it's another one where it's kind of a simple setup that allows oh. you to go in all sorts of directions. So just real quick for anyone who hasn't read it, just give oh. like the, so it's about a group of teenagers, right? Okay. And and are they also, it's like the coast area of Texas, right? Yeah, they live here mm-hmm. and it's in the 90s. It's it's, the night. And I thought you captured, again, as a fellow younger yeah. Gen Xer, I, I thought you yeah. captured that world really well with the musical oh. references and everything. Well, and and it was my group of friends. Mm. I 100% modeled this on a speci- specific people okay. to where when I was writing it, I had their real names and a final draft, I had to go change them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a lot of the things... So, so for the listeners, it's, it's a group of friends Mm -hmm. and they like to go on top of this elementary school that's abandoned and smoke weed, which is what me and my friends did, except it wasn't an abandoned elementary school, (laughs) uh, but it was on the weekends. No one's there. Right. And we had a lot of deep conversations on the roof of an elementary school. (laughs) They decided to go inside Mm -hmm. and see what was going on. It had been flooded and they find this old parachute and they decide to have some fun with it. And a few of them don't know what it is. They didn't really grow up with that. And so they're explaining it. They're in the gym, right? They're They're in the gym. The, the school gym and so they go they go underneath the parachute enter these crazy worlds and they start to sort of through the entry and exits of these worlds they figure out some of the rules mm-hmm. of how to get in and out and they lose someone so that's why they have to keep going back in to try to find her mm-hmm. and someone runs for help and anything else would be spoilers i guess yeah well i love like the setup because it was i mean i think a lot of us have played that game it was we all did it as like a group activity and mm-hmm. where you had the parachute you throw it up and you'd all run and get underneath so you'd be in this kind of like weird liminal space inside mm-hmm. the parachute uh but your idea is that once they get inside the parachute inside the parachute it's like essentially gateway to these like other yeah. worlds okay. or dimensions and their reactions to this discovery are so perfectly like stoner teenagers <laughs> Because at first they're like, that was awesome. Let's do it again. And then, oh, (laughs) now it's a different world. Okay, let's do it again. And then finally, like, there's one or two of the girls, I think the two girls, are like, maybe we shouldn't do this again. And they're like, no, let's do it one more time. And then that's when one of the girls gets lost. And that's when they realize how dangerous this is. And so they keep, and each time they go in, it's just more, it seems like each successive world is more threat. Dangerous. And I tried to do that. Yeah. It seemed fun and let's explore. And then now it's too late. Yeah. And again, like, I don't want to spoil any of the specific worlds, but I will say the one that gave me the nightmares and it will make sense based on what I just told you about being afraid of the water, but it's when they go under it and then they're like in the ocean yeah like underwater and there's miles of water above them and they're floating down into some sort of lovecraftian kind of creature yeah lovecraftian exactly (laughs) the imagery and just the idea of suddenly finding yourself submerged in water and not just like underwater but under 
miles miles of it's like it's like the oceans of europa or something you know <laughs> so i um i have an advanced open water degree from patty mm. at scuba diving and lake travis was like the in in uh i think it's in austin uh texas was mm-hmm. the deepest that i'd ever dove and i think we went to 90 feet uh, to get our advanced degree and anything past 100 you have to have a different combination of of oxygen and things Mm -hmm. but there's it's three four hundred feet deep so just knowing that there were 90 feet of water above me Mm -hmm. and light doesn't filter through 90 feet of water you don't know which way is up until you follow a bubble Mm -hmm. and knowing that there's that many hundreds below you and on either side of you. And there's just such a strange feeling of mm-hmm. just being exposed, but mm-hmm. not because you can't see things. They probably can't see you either. And, but knowing that you have to follow a bubble is just the craziest thing. It, to me. I mean, even you just saying that kind of, <laughs> are you okay? The shutters. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you wiggling. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and it, I mean that, so that, in particular, that part of the story really got under my skin. Mm-hmm. But then it was also just this idea of, you know, as things get worse and they're trying to fix it, there's no way to, you know. And again, I don't want to spoil where it goes, but it it seems like as they get in, they're just getting in deeper and deeper yeah. and deeper. And that really just, I found it really unsettling. Cool. Thank you. Really unnerving. So, yeah, well Great. done. <laughs> And so on the same line of something that I found really unsettling and unnerving, we should talk about Table for Three. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So this episode, I think, is coming out on the day that it's released. So this is the the hardback jacket cover. I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. I've had stories in hardback before, but I've never had my name on the cover of a hardback. That's cool. (laughs) And this is the the paperback. It's a little bit different in size. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got my paperback on order. Did you read it yet? Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, well, I, yeah, I read the the Kindle file that you sent. Okay, yeah. the, the ARC. Yeah. Yeah, that was actually my husband's idea. It was Ryan's idea. He was going to be, it was going to be table for four. Mm. He was going to have a story in it. He got super busy with work. He's a safety director. He writes a lot of like safety things for work all day. And mm-hmm. he's like, just go without me. Cause I, you tell me something I'm going to go with, I'm going to set a timeline. I'm like, <laughs> if we're going to get people going. Right. And he's like, well, I didn't know, realize you're going to, you know, do all this right now. It's like, look, <laughs> look, otherwise it'll just sit on the back burner forever. So mm-hmm. we put a timeline on it and Rebecca and Doug were on board and they definitely came in clutch. Their stuff is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny that it's, very like indicative i think of their styles um doug is very sometimes bizarro but uh almost dreamlike almost like yeah like when we were when we talked when i talked to him um we were kind of trying to decide what his genre is and i heard that yeah. <laughs> and we were like sort of folk horror like <laughs> neo folk horror kind of cosmic horror kind of bizarro he's like... folk cosmic bizarro yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's um, and then of course rebecca is little edgy more sci-fi mm-hmm. smart just such a good writer they're both mm-hmm. great writers um I'm, I'm honored to be in here with them and then mine is i i don't i heard when you were talking to doug about like where he pins himself into or whatever and i i don't think i have a genre um mm-hmm. or a subgenre of horror yet i haven't maybe written enough to know mm-hmm. what my my zone is or my lane but this is definitely uh, cat food in table for three is definitely gross and 
Yeah. <laughs> a little grosser than I normally write. It's it's more in the extreme horror direction, but not in the bizarre direction of where I tend to think of Bizarro as leaning towards like pushing the absurdity into like a comedic realm. Okay. I found cat food to be really it's gross, mm-hmm. but it was really just it was disturbing. It's a dark story. So we should talk a little bit about just what Table for Three is. So it's a it's a collection of three novellas. Yeah. That's for charity, right? It is. Um all pro- it's all proceeds are going actually to the Houston Food Bank. Okay. Although when I I went back and forth with their PR person for a week. <laughs> they do not condone anything within this book. They do not <laughs> recommend doing any of the things that... Sure. <laughs> I mean, I think I don't recommend doing any of the things. <laughs> you the know, what's either. funny is I went... I went to a food bank first that's a little closer that's in Freeport, Texas, mm-hmm. and that I had worked with for my, my day job before. And they said, no, thank you. They don't want to be associated with horror. They they are yeah. a family-oriented place, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. But there's a better way to handle it, which is exactly how the Houston Food Bank handled it. She mm-hmm. said, okay, but got some reservations. Yeah, we need to put our little disclaimer on it. Completely understandable. Absolutely. They don't know if I handled this respectfully. They don't know if I was, you know, making fun of people who are hungry. or. Mm-hmm. So I 100% understood every concern. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful that they worked with me and were willing to have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. But that's why I don't say their name on the actual book cover. Uh, because I don't want to have to have the disclaimer on the book cover. Sure. It can be mentioned in reviews. Like I got a great review uh, blurb from Bev Vincent and uh, he mentions it and that's Mm -hmm. fine. But all proceeds do go to the Houston Food Bank. And what's great is the Houston feeds a lot of smaller food banks. The food bank I first went to receives from Houston Food Bank. So they're still going to get our horror money. Right. They may not like it. They're still going to get it. Well, you do have a list at the end. I noticed in in the arc, you have Mm -hmm. a list of different places if people want to those are sort of the main bigger places. And, but like mm-hmm. I said, I think I mentioned in here, a lot of them uh, service a wide range of counties. Like if you go to the Houston's website, uh, you can see everywhere they serve and all of the sub food banks that they they help provide for. They do a lot of great mm-hmm. things. Well, because- I think it's a great idea. And I think, you know, I understand pe- people, particularly people who aren't in the horror world are kind of freaked out by horror mm-hmm. and the association with horror. But the thing is, what you guys in each of your own way, in each of your stories, what you're able to do is really in an allegorical way. This is what horror I think allows us to do is kind of talk about things allegorically, really kind of like this is the worst case scenario of what kind of food deserts or, or food lack of food resources can mean. And I think of, you know, your, your story and Rebecca's story are kind of similar in the sense that there is some sort of taint in the food supply. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then where you guys each go is so different, mm-hmm. but kind of equally grim places. And I don't know if I mentioned that. Yeah, every story does deal with food, uh, hunger, right? food shortages, hunger, whether it's apocalyptic or just a mm-hmm. specific family or um, that was the only assignment was food shortage, mm-hmm. whatever that meant. And, you know, and like we said, you know, Doug kind of went in a more supernatural folk horror direction that I found um, just the mythology he was working with really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he almost did a, he almost did things in reverse where it's like, what if you have something that's able to in a Faustian bargain kind of way, like provide. 
<laughs> yeah. Like, what are you giving up to this? Yeah. Nothing's for free, right? Nothing's for free. Exactly. And then your story, cat food. So give us just a little bit of the setup for cat food. Um, so cat food is two friends and the mm-hmm. main character is one of them who, one of them works at a local SPCA mm-hmm. and they take pets that have been recently euthanized. So it's still fresh. Mm-hmm. and they uh, eat them and they mm-hmm. take them home and try to feed their families. And there's a virus that has gone around that has affected the meat supply, mm-hmm. but as yet had not affected cats or dogs. Mm-hmm. But you'll you'll see what happens in the story yeah. and how that translates to humans who have consumed this meat mm-hmm. that's been tainted with this virus. And it's awful. I mean, because we're in the head of some infected people and yeah. I'll just leave it at that. But the way that this disease, as you've conceived it, just breaks down every aspect of their humanity. I had fun with that. It was it was fun. It was gross, and it was really disturbing. <laughs> but it was it's 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 an entertaining story because it moves really like it, again, kind of like with parachute. It's got this great build towards you know with with each step we see characters making mistakes that just make things worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And you just you feel that dread of being on the outside watching it happen. And, yeah and there's a scene with a with a baby that a few people have mentioned um as a bad one but i had a lot of fun with that it's rough but i mean we're all horror readers and like i mean i do understand the like don't hurt babies and dogs mm-hmm. <laughs> or animals but I no mean, animals of... were directly hurt in this that's true they were already dead <laughs> <laughs> although and i still stand by it is a valid source of protein i don't mm-hmm. i don't understand why it's not been used i don't other cultures have no problems and we eat animals that other cultures don't and it's it's yeah. weird and let's just get over that well yeah i mean it it goes down to you know people have always said like well what is it where is the line and it's like well we don't want to eat the animals we think are cute or, the, or who is it said yeah. we don't want to eat the animals that can smile at us which is i think like a dog but the thing is a dog's not actually smiling no. <laughs> like a dog's panting or whatever and i'm a i'm a dog lover Mm-hmm. I'm not in a hurry to eat my dog. Um. <laughs> well, what's funny is we all did dedications and we have five dogs and mm-hmm. our oldest is not in great, great health. And um, mm-hmm. she's also our fattest and her name is Maggie. And we joke that she would be the first we would eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so I dedicated this story to her. But uh, um, Well, that's funny because I always like to joke with my friends where I say, I have a couple friends uh, who are like ex-military they're gun guys you know they're like i'm not quite survivalists but you know they've definitely thought through some things i'm like yeah in a, in a zombie apocalypse like i'm only good as a food source like, <laughs> you guys <laughs> you guys have this covered i'm just like you know roast me over a spit and you know because like I, otherwise i'm just holding you back <laughs> it's, it's also interesting because rebecca is mostly vegetarian I'm mostly vegetarian, vegan, mm-hmm. and how we approached our stories was was funny when you think about that too. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a cautionary tale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think you know, like you say, it's it's um it's a valid point, and I think again, this is what horror. I think because horror is so quote disrespectable uh, <laughs> to to the squares, it actually <laughs> it lets us like entertain ideas that other that like 
you know, Uh polite society says we shouldn't. And one of them is like in a crisis where all of the food, except for cats and dogs, has been tainted. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Where's that line going to be? In the story, they didn't because they didn't know right. how or when it would move over to them and it wasn't safe. Right. But in real life, there's there's hungry people everywhere and we're just throwing this away. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah, I th- and I think that's a valid, you know, and again, that's like polite society may not want us to talk about those things, but that's that's where a book like this... They have this, no I problem think. eating like baby cows. Like what? Mm-hmm. I, where are you drawing this Yeah, and if, right, and if you're... If you're someone in like India, like a Hindu mm-hmm. person, like they would see that as barbaric, you know? Yeah. So it, it is, all these things are cultural and, you know, and when it comes down to survival, you know, a lot of that stuff kind of goes out the window. I do want to very briefly talk about Rebecca's story mm-hmm. because I thought I need, and I need to talk, I need to tell her this. I've read a bunch of her stuff mm-hmm. and I think her story, Rock of Ages, is probably my favorite thing she's read. Oh, wow. She's going to yeah. love that. Because, I mean, it's, and I've loved everything of hers that I've read, but, you know, it starts in a similar place that yours does and that there's a, I think in hers, it's a fungal infection, mm-hmm. paints like 80% of the, the grain supply, right? Which of course affects the meat supply because you okay. can't give feed to animals and, you know, hers centers on a group of college kids just living together in a in an apartment. I think it's five of them. And you just see like, at first they're like, oh, this sucks you know oh, i hope this doesn't get too bad and then by the end it's this you know you see that progression right of you know the breakdown you know when people are going hungry you know what people are capable of and, and we we just left covid lockdowns mm-hmm. very similar start to that yeah uh, her, her story in particular really reminded me of being in the lockdown kind of yeah world. and you know i i live alone so for me it was just like whatever i've got my hbo max and i'm fine <laughs> but like <laughs> um i have friends who were like stuck mm-hmm. in houses with roommates for six months or oh. a year and like you know relationships do uh get tested in that kind of situation and Definitely. So yeah, I uh, I loved the book. I loved all three of the stories. Awesome. I'm going to post a link to it. Like I said, this episode is coming out the day that it releases. So nice. um, definitely all of you guys, the minute you're done listening, you should just go and get your copy. Go buy it. Yeah. But you um, mentioned um, I Saw the Devil. We have to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, so we'll close out with that. So I did not write down, I should have written down the names of the, the filmmakers, and I'm not even going to try and guess because they're Korean and I'm going to fuck the up. The director movie. was, I wrote down Kim Ji-Woon was the director. So these are, it's a Korean horror, kind of action horror film. And anyone yeah. who's seen Korean horror knows that Korean horror tends to go Brutal. tends to go for it <laughs> and I would say this movie goes for it you said it was an influence on come join the murder and mm-hmm. I can definitely see that okay good they're very different stories mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the characters are very different but I think I can see where just in like a spiritual sense what you were drawing from so talk a little bit about I saw the devil and what it was uh, I guess give us like for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, if you want to give like a quick little setup, yeah. and then what it was specifically that kind of inspired you. So I saw the devil is about it. It starts off with a woman who has a flat tire, I believe, and mm-hmm. she's in the snow. She's in the middle of nowhere, and she's on the phone with her fiance. I think it is later said, and um, yeah, I think it said they had just gotten engaged like a month yeah. earlier. 
and he uh says well just wait for you know the tow truck you called the tow truck wait Mm -hmm. she's like well a guy's pulled up and he's offered to help he's like no wait for the tow truck and the guy you know it gets a little insistent and then he gets back in his car but he doesn't leave Mm -hmm. and this is the opening scene this is not a spoiler yeah and he ends up killing her very brutally Mm. and uh so this the fiance was a special agent i guess for some sort of like fbi type thing i looked it up he was an agent with what the nis which is their national intelligence service which i think is like from what i was trying to read it's like it would be like kind of almost a combination of the fbi and the cia that makes sense so he's like he's like a james he's like a korean james bond kind of. and her dad was the chief of police mm-hmm. or captain or something chief yeah basically it's his revenge story and like he said it's, it's similar to come join the murder where and that's where i got the, these ideas where you but be- it's i saw the devil and the devil was me kind of thing mm-hmm. where he becomes the monster he was hunting and they mentioned and i think that's a line from the the movie where he's like you're going to become this monster that you're hunting yeah. and he does and the decisions he makes in the movie allow more people to get killed uh, because he's so set on revenge and mm-hmm. he has to live with that and it's- well in, in his revenge again i don't want to spoil it but it's not as simple as tracking the guy down and killing him mm-hmm Oh, no. He wants him to suffer. He wants him to suffer, which means leaving him alive for a certain amount of time. Which, like you said, then allows other people to get hurt. Yeah, and every time you see this guy attack someone else, you're like, you could have prevented this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But... um... His name is Choi Min Sik. I'm sure I'm butchering that. Mm. He was the good guy in Old Boy. Mm-hmm. And he's the bad guy here. He is. It's been a while since I've seen Old Boy. Mm-hmm. And I think these are probably the only two movies that I've seen that he's in. Mm-hmm. Same. Or at least that I'm remembering. He is such a fantastic actor. He's so good. And he's a great bad guy. He well, what's great is he's he brings both to his I guess you would say anti hero in Old Boy uh-huh. and then yeah. to his serial killer in uh, I Saw the Devil this kind of matter of fact world weariness uh-huh. that feels very real, very like he he's never hamming it up, he never once he doesn't play evil by like shouting you know it's a thing uh, my friend amelia who i do the other podcast yeah. with mm-hmm. she's an actor and she talks about one problem she sees sometimes with male actors like and she'll see this in auditions is they equate emotion with volume mm. and, and it can and it's some of it's just like it's a gender acculturation thing where when men play anger or when men want to play threatening they go loud that makes sense and this guy, you know, this actor, and I, I'm get, I'm not going to try and butcher his name, but if anyone who's seen Old Boy knows uh-huh. who we're talking about, um, he he just he he resists that impulse completely. Like he's so dark, he's so dark, but so like like I said, there's a world weariness and almost a casualness to it. Yeah, it's um, it's um, James was definitely modeled after him, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I could I could see that, yeah, that attitude of it, but. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it was it was a very it's a poor man's imitation. Um, I saw the devil is brilliant. It's great. Well, I it's mean, not I as think good as old boy. I like old boy better. But well, old boy has you know I saw the devil is a very stylish film. Mm-hmm. But old boy, and that's is that Park Chan Wook? Is he the director of Old Boy? I'm forgetting now. That sounds right. I don't know. I'm gonna look it up real quick. <laughs> Make sure I'm not. <laughs> 
Totally. And oh, and for people listening, do not watch the U.S. version of Old Boy. No. About it. Which I I have not seen, but I've heard bad things about it. It's mm-hmm. too bad because it's Spike Lee directed it, and I generally like a lot think. of his work. It's a- yeah, it's maybe just something that just really didn't translate. I don't know. Yes, Park Chan-wook. So he directed Old Boy. Mm -hmm. Um, And anyone who's seen any of Park Chan-wook's, he is just like, he is a a visual powerhouse Mm -hmm. as a filmmaker. Like he, just what he does with the camera, what he does stylistically. Everyone remembers the hallway fight scene in Old Boy. Mm -hmm. And the snow scene at the end. And the snow scene at the end. And like, I Saw the Devil is very beautifully shot. And it's very... Mm -hmm stylish film but it doesn't ever quite have that kind of level of of um iconic imagery i don't think it's a little think. dirtier it's a little dirtier which i can appreciate yeah it, there's a griminess <laughs> to it <laughs> yeah. i also think old boy is such a you know there's i saw the devil um it's got a very kind of almost standard setup where it's like you know it's almost like a movie like taken you know where it's like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh he messed with the wrong guy's family kind of thing and it just happens to be that he's like this storyline right right and then where it goes it kind of at the halfway point it goes in some very bizarre unexpected directions old boy starts very strange (laughs) like you're you're just thrown into the deep end with old boy and like why is this guy in this hotel room and then oh he's been here for 15 years and then it's such a strange and again and it's another motivator in old boy it was like really you're holding that well and it's and they're similar in a way now that i think about it in that they're both exploring the concept of vengeance as like a long-term project yeah you know as it's not like a moment of vengeance like you're it's not death wish where you're trying to track down the killer so that you can kill them it's this systematic kind of revenge over a certain period of time which is not something we see that often which and i saw the devil he told his boss i just need two weeks i'm like well mm-hmm. that's cocky <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah he, he he seems pretty confident <laughs> yeah. he has a certain set of skills <laughs> yes and, and he does yeah. what what so i mean i think i can see the ways in which i saw the devil influenced come join the murder what were some of the like but you do veer away from it so where were where were those like choices you know between like you know the inspiration from the movie and then where you ultimately went with the story i think just the overall good versus bad and what that Mm -hmm. is people do bad things for good reasons and good things for bad reasons Mm -hmm. and it's a very blurry line that people don't want to acknowledge yeah like no i would never and i'm a good person well really because i might (laughs) we're all capable of we are and Mm -hmm we're all capable of becoming these monsters and mm-hmm. the monsters are doing things for good reasons sometimes that are yeah. good to them. That makes sense to them and their head. They're the hero. And it's, it's very muddled. And I love that idea. Well, and what I like about a movie, like I saw the devil or what you did with come join the murder. I actually have, you inspired me with come join the murder. Oh wow! I have my own kind of crimey revenge novel that I've been working on oh, cool. that I kind of set aside, but probably two, three years ago, I was working mm-hmm. on it kind of the, very beginning of the pandemic and then i kind of set aside to work on some other things 
And then after reading Come Join the Murder and then rereading it, I was like, oh, I need to get back to that. Oh, cool. But part of what I find inspiring by what you did and also what I saw the devil did is, you know, I can appreciate a good death wish type story. You know, Mm -hmm. the kind of wish fulfillment revenge story or a movie like Get Carter does that too. Mm -hmm. But there's something that always feels a little irresponsible about that to me in Mm -hmm. that you're kind of, you're sort of positing that like revenge works. Mm. you know that like yeah you can get closure by getting vengeance or that there won't be any like unexpected consequences from that Mm -hmm. and you know come join the murder i saw the devil what i'm trying to do with this novel it's called acid canyon like that yeah it's based on uh where i grew up los alamos new mexico there's a canyon there that we call acid canyon that there's supposedly uh nuclear waste buried there because if you know los alamos that's where the manhattan project was the national labs and all all that so i'm kind of use that as the backdrop for this like crime revenge story but i like that you didn't with conjuring the murder and it's what i think I saw, you know, I saw the devil walks that line maybe a little bit more where there is a little bit more of that feeling of almost wish fulfillment. Because there are moments where terrible things are happening to the killer and you're like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Is that healthy? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You really, in Come From the Murder, you really don't give us that kind of easy, like there's really no moment that feels like an easy Mm kind of get out of jail free card, so to speak. Huh. And I and I appreciate that because I do find, you know, not to be like a moralist, you know, moralize uh-huh. about it, but I always feel a little squicky about like the death wish type stories. Yeah. You know. That makes sense. And I I but I love a good revenge story, but I like a revenge story that kind of takes it seriously. But like more people will get hurt. Yeah. And people you don't mean to get hurt are likely to get it's hurt. Never clean. It's never clean. Well, and the end of Come Join the Murder is mentioned in Parachute. I don't know if you caught that. Um, hmm. I don't think I did. The uh, people, the two, the brother and sister that lived with their grandfather, uh-huh. how their parents died was a car was stopped at the top of a bridge. Oh. And it made, which makes zero sense timeline wise because it was in the 90s and Come Join the Murder was no. not. But it doesn't have to make sense because no, like we're writers. Little... We can do what we want. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little wink. Oh, I yeah. did not, I did not catch that. <laughs> so that well, good, because it that. doesn't connect really. <laughs> yeah, doesn't make sense timeline-wise. But. No, I, I thought, I mean, like I said, I, I love Come Join the Murder. I really love Parachute. I do. I want to. So I'm, and I'm again. I'm not going to try and pronounce his name. But the the filmmaker who made I Saw the Devil, mm-hmm. I was unfamiliar with his work before. I'm going to try and go and check out more of his He's stuff. He's won awards and things. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. I haven't seen anything else by him besides this. So. I have a, you know, because I teach a horror, I teach an international horror cinema class oh, wow. in the fall. And one area that I have become aware that I have some big gaps in my knowledge mm-hmm. is both Japanese horror and Korean horror. And so I, you know, I saw the devil has been on my list of like, well, this is one I obviously I have to catch up with because I really need to be able to talk about these things. And I'm glad I did because it really oh, cool. it reminded me that how much I did like, you know, I do love movies like Old Boy. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're subtitled and you definitely need to watch them with subtitles, not with the, what do they call it? Um, like the dubbing. The dubbing. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. sucks. 
yeah, you lose so much because I mean, I'm thinking of again that actor who plays the killer, and I saw the devil and the the antihero and old boy. Uh-huh. There's so much that he does just in his vocal inflection, the emotion in it, yeah. And you're just gonna lose that with dubbing because you're gonna get some like Z-list actor who's just not gonna be able to turn in the same quality of performance. Aside from the fact that you're distracted by the like lack of sync and all and that. i know people aren't always in the mood to read subtitles uh because you want to play on your phone while you watch right or whatever and you can't do that you have to really focus yeah. which is what i like about it mm-hmm. it makes you really focus and i and i did and i you know it's funny you mentioned that because as i was watching i saw the devil it really kind of showed me how bad of a habit i've developed because i hadn't watched a subtitle movie in a little mm-hmm. while I've gotten just such a bad habit of constantly wanting to check Instagram or whatever. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh shit, I missed something. And then you have to go back. Same. So I had to just turn my phone off and put it away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that is, you know, it's good. You know, I'm a filmmaker. I went to film school. Uh, I know how frustrating it is for me as a filmmaker to have made movies and then I've screened them and I see people fucking around. Oh. So like, it's a good reminder to me to like also have that respect <laughs> for as a filmmaker what did you think of the endless i loved it such a small budget and these these guys did mm-hmm. everything right yeah it's uh, uh moorhead and benson i'm forgetting uh-huh. their first name and they they acted they they directed they did the cinematography the effects so they did another movie called spring i haven't seen that one it's really good it's like a lovecraftian romance kind of it's a horror movie but it's got like this kind of romantic angle to it what they do and what i think they're very good at is horror that is it's like the horror is always kind of like what would the i don't want to say in the background because that's not quite right but it's like the a little more subtle it's more subtle it's the world feels so grounded that mm-hmm. the horror when it ha- again there's like a matter of factness to it it's not about like some crazy visual effect it's it's usually just kind of sort of some smaller practical effect i mean there's a little more like visual effects and stuff in spring mm-hmm. but you know they they're i don't know if you've ever heard of um what's called mumblecore it's mm-hmm. like an indie it's an indie film genre it's like uh i know Joe Swanberg, Greta Gerwig was associated with this. And it's like low budget movies, a lot of times shot on video. And it's called mumblecore. It's sort of a derisive term. But, you know, they call it mumblecore because it's like a lot of kind of like millennials sort of mumbling at each other kind of thing. And it's very almost slice (laughs) of life. That's the word I was looking for. There's a slice of life. Yeah. And like, it's easy to make fun of these movies, but when they're good, there's something like that's very immersive about you're just like it's like they're hangout movies you feel like you're just kind of hanging out with people you know and i i think it it was a passion project right and and mm-hmm. you, it comes across yeah and that's what i was gonna say like a movie like the endless has a mumble core feel to it uh-huh. but in this kind of trippy sci-fi horror context with time loops and weird kind of apocalypse cults hanging out outside of san diego UFO but at the same time you're kind of just like hanging out with these guys yeah. And it has this very slice of life feel to it. And again, it's that it's that juxtaposition, I think, that can make it kind of uh-huh. in a way, it almost reminds me of what we were saying about on um, your story, the two months too long, uh-huh. where it's like the juxtaposition between her character of being the, the crazy stalker girlfriend who's so out there. And then everyone else just being like a regular person just trying to get through their day. Like that tension between the two is part of what makes it interesting. Hmm. And in a very different way, I would say the same thing about The Endless, where it's like you're kind of just hanging out with like what feels like pretty regular people. Yeah. But they're in this like really kind of wild 
sci-fi situation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I did. I did like that movie. I'd forgotten that I'd seen it because I'd forgotten the title of it. But uh, as soon as I looked it up, I was like, oh, yeah, that. Movie. Did you uh, see, is it called Time Trap where they're in the cave? No, I haven't seen that one. Oh, it's so good. It's a similar, I think it's a lower budget, um, but they're in, the, in this cave and there's different systems and different um, time moves differently. And they're, they're going to find their professor. Hmm. It's so good. I think it's called, if not, I'll, I'll message you, but I think it's called Time Trap. Oh, I'm going to look that up. Uh, like I've rewatched it probably five times in the last year and a half. It's it's one of those good to put on huh. when I'm just in the mood for something uh, like that. But it's time stuff has just been, I don't know, since Parachute, since The Endless, and since this Time Trap movie, it's there's so much you can do with it. And yeah. Places you can go. Well, and you know, people complain about time travel or time loop movie because it's always like, oh, the rules don't make sense. But it's like sometimes it's the fact that the rules don't make sense that makes it interesting. Yeah. I always I said this to Doug too. Like my shorthand when I'm I'm describing horror to my students, we always say sci-fi is about like taking the rational world that we know and kind of extrapolating beyond what we know, mm-hmm. but it's still rooted in or like fantasy is about creating another world that has its own kind of rational rules. Yeah. And then horror is about taking a rational world and then violating that somehow you know bringing in the irrational and so sometimes the more you explain it you kind of ruin that so would would the endless be fantasy or sci-fi well i think it, it to me the endless kind of walks a border between sci-fi and horror mm-hmm. because you do get a sense that there is you know maybe a rational explanation that we don't understand you know we don't mm-hmm. understand everything about how time works and everything so mm-hmm. these time loops but then there's this kind of Lovecraftian cosmic horror element where it's like whatever is happening and whatever is causing this and there's the sense of this entity that's maybe behind it feels totally unknowable yeah. in a way that like that pushes it more towards horror for me. Yeah. I mean, these but, are all like pretty subjective. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's um, like a lot of things that maybe we just don't understand yet are attributed to ghosts <laughs> or spirits or like, right. and, and they've proven like these low decibel noises that we don't hear, but your body still reacts to and uh-huh. things like that. So it's a lot of, to me, this, the religious kind of horror isn't scary because it's like, well, it's just maybe just stuff we don't understand yet. Um, right. so stuff that maybe is fantasy today will be sci-fi, you know, in 50 years. I don't remember where I read this, but gorillas were considered two Western people, you know, white people mm-hmm. going into Africa were considered mythological until like, I think the early 1900s what i guess it's because i've never seen them well yeah because like people would go in and they'd be talking to the natives and the natives in like the congo or whatever would be like yeah there are these like hairy men that live up in the mountains and we'd be like (laughs) oh leave me like bigfoot whatever okay and then they go (laughs) up there and there's these apes up there (laughs) you know so again it's that idea of like the supernatural is just part of the natural world that we haven't Mm -hmm. discovered yet we haven't you know what i like about horror so something like parachute to me Mm -hmm. is it's like you could say like yeah is there a sci-fi explanation for it Sure, but the factors were in the subjectivity of these characters who they have no tools to understand what's happening. And and so that's what makes it horror to me because they're just a bunch of kids who are like hanging out on the roof of a (laughs) elementary school smoking pot. That's part of the rational world. And then all of a sudden they're being sucked into these other dimensions. 
that's the violation, you know. And there's a chupacabra, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That really isn't, I don't believe it exists. Um, it's it's mm-hmm. usually a coyote with mange. I mean, that's right. what, that's what most Yeah, people... when they found them in like Texas or whatever, it's yeah. like, that's super a coyote. Coyotes <laughs> like... are very common here. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I can completely see the resemblance yeah. to the chupacabra. Right. Well, it's funny. I, I don't know if you've ever listened to my other podcast much, The Weirdest Thing, mm-hmm. but, you know, we will do um, paranormal stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. And what we end up doing half the time is debunking stuff for ourselves, nice, nice. which is not even like the goal. Usually it's like, oh, here's <laughs> some crazy, like, oh, talk about the Philadelphia experiment or something. And then as you start doing the research, it's like, okay, here's the actual thing that happened, yeah. you know? Yeah. But there's always that part of me, you know, like I always say, I grew up in Los Alamos. You know, my dad's an engineer. Um, I grew up around physicists and scientists. And so there's a part of me that doesn't want to believe anything, wants to be totally empirical about everything. (laughs) And then the horror guy part of me kind of wants to believe everything. Still wants to believe in the Loch Ness Monster and wants to believe in ghosts and stuff. So I'm always a little bit like fighting, you know, these two (laughs) warring impulses. Um, But to me, it's like uh, something like uh, Chupacabra. It's like, yeah, probably doesn't exist. But what if, I mean, what if we're wrong? What if there's a chupacabra out there? There could be like a genetic abnormality with a coyote who happens sure. to have names. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we just yeah. never know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, um, I guess we can go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you for spending the amount of time you did. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. I'm asking everyone this until it happened, but I, I don't suppose, are you going to be at StokerCon this year? I'm not. No, nah, to that's too bad. <laughs> um, I'll be at author at Texas AuthorCon in July, and then I'll be mm-hmm. at KillerCon in yeah, and KillerCon in August. I was hoping to, I went to KillerCon last year. I was hoping to be able to make it back, but unfortunately, don't think I can make it this year. So, oh, are you going to go to AuthorCon in Virginia? Yeah, I, th- I think I'm going to try and make it to that one. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, uh, we have uh, Rebecca and Doug and I will be there. Okay, great. Yeah, um, I, I think Bridget's going to be there. I think the guys mm-hmm. from Sinister Smile Press are going to be there. Yeah. So. yeah, I was seeing everyone's pictures posting on uh, social media from that event. It's the Scares the Care, right? Yeah, I, I went the first year. I didn't go this year because we had some kitchen renovation issues mm. that I needed to spend the money on. Um, but I hated missing out. Yeah, I was so jealous seeing everyone hanging out that I was like, I think I'm going to have to try and make it up there. So, And it's really, I, I call it the, the horror writers reunion. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like that is a good one to go to if you really just want to like meet a lot of other writers. So. Yeah. And that's that's where I first met Rebecca and Doug in person at the uh, the first AuthorCon in Virginia. Uh, we've mm. been friends online, right? But we solidified the friendship and and met in person there and had a great time. And I think that's valuable for mm-hmm. for authors. It, it's such yeah. a lonely thing that we do. Well, I like I you know I have a lot of good friends here in Albuquerque, but I don't have a lot of people I can just sit and talk horror stuff with. <laughs> so it's really? nice. Yeah, yeah, it's nice getting to know everyone who kind of has similar similar weirdos you're you not know. the weirdo anymore right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or we're all weirdos we're all weirdos <laughs> so here we are with Alyssa hall um and Alyssa's going to tell us a little bit about a production that we have going on here in albuquerque of sweeney todd so um i guess uh Alyssa, go ahead and say hi <laughs> hi excited to be such a long-term fan so it's thrilling to actually have some mm-hmm. venture circle crossover and yeah. be able to be 
part of this podcast. Yeah, I think you're one of our for the weirdest thing podcast. You're one of our like OG fans going back to the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, like there are topics entire times that are horror related that I geek out to in the car, like specifically <laughs> the one where you talk about Stephen King. Mm. And this is just a sidebar moment, but I have to say that your Stephen King episode when we talk about good trash, bad trash, all of that, love mm-hmm. that. But- have this pet theory for coming from my years as a librarian where I really very much believe that the later Stephen King that came out in the 90s was actually Tabitha's work because Tabitha quit Ooh. publishing and suddenly out of nowhere you see King begin to show these female-centered point of views, Mm. which he's never done before. He changes his pace. He changes all of his storytelling technique and what it changes into for like um, Rose Matter, Gerald's Game, all of those Mm -hmm. ones that are 90s pieces. Um, Even Skinwalkers, but Skinwalkers was still more old school King. It was like a bit of a mashup. Definitely. um, What's the one about the bones? That one was another. A bag of bones. Bag of bones. That one's very Mm -hmm. romantic, but also felt like maybe a collaboration. But yeah, I felt like they were like, you know what? We can make so much fucking money if we just put (laughs) (laughs) your name instead of mine. I don't know. It's my pet theory. (laughs) That's interesting. I've never heard that theory before. I mean, I do think that like in some ways, in particular Gerald's game mm-hmm. feels like if she didn't write it I think she had an influence on it had for to. Sure. like there has to be a, a huge fingerprint uh, mm. uh, that whether we know it or not is my thought right. <laughs> she, set. she was such a brilliant storyteller in her mm-hmm. own right yeah she was very yeah she's a very good writer but yeah she hasn't published anything that I know of in a really long time so so, so that was my theory, but um, <laughs> back to Sweeney Todd, now that we're here. Yeah. <laughs> so Sweeney Todd, so I feel like, you know, this is a horror podcast, and I feel like most people are aware of Sweeney Todd and kind of know the basics about it, but I wonder how many people really think of it as like actually a horror piece. So if you could just tell us a little bit about like what you know about the original play and kind of where it comes from, what some of the influences were. Yeah, absolutely. So as the director, my approach for the material itself came very much from, I was informed from my librarianship and my background Mm -hmm. as an English literature major going way back. Mm -hmm. And so Sweeney Todd, the original material came from the Penny Dreadful series. Mm -hmm. These came out in 1846 and 1847. Mm -hmm. So it's a variety of writers, but mostly it's attributed to James Malcolm Reimer as being the original of this character and the title itself back then wasn't uh, Sweeney Todd the demon barber of Fleet Street like mm. we know it today it right. was Sweeney Todd and the string of pearls mm. so this was the originator and what I found so fascinating I had to go back and just really I wanted to get the material from the inside out as far as how I directed my piece and the originator of this material what I found so fascinating when you look at it in context with horror literature of course we have Mary Shelley as Frankenstein and kind of right. what many people think of as our progenitor of the mm-hmm. genre there are other moments i mean titus andronicus with shakespeare has people being baked in pies so (laughs) (laughs) slasher and and other moments that we see in literature but when we look at the genre itself sweeney came along really early so it was very early in the 1800s i want to say maybe 1818 i I, i'm shooting from the hip on that one for mary shelley 
It was so, 1818 for Frankenstein, yeah. For the first for, for the first edition of Frankenstein, yeah. Exactly so. Like, and this was a brand new concept for the reader itself. Mm. This was like being such a new one. So the dreadfuls came along, and if someone hasn't heard of the penny dreadfuls before, those were very short serial style entertainment that was being produced, very low cost, often on just a sheet of paper or, or you know, very, mm-hmm. very cheap. And people could buy them for a penny and they were salacious and gory and they were fiction, which is also, you Mm. know, that shows a lowbrow attempt at reading. (laughs) The history of the Penny Dreadfuls is kind of interesting, the way it kind of mirrors like the development of Gothic literature, because Gothic literature was always kind of seen as like women's fiction and the, you know, sensation novels and things like that. Whereas the Penny Dreadfuls, I think, were a little bit more marketed and sold to like the working man kind of thing. But when you really look at like they're doing the same thing i think the penny dreadfuls are a little bit gnarlier <laughs> a little bit uh like like you said gorier they, it was and they also were kind of like early true crime in some ways because it would take like these true crime stories and put these kind of tabloidy fictionalized spins on them and well, you named it because um sweeney todd is actually it's sweeney is a derivation der- derivative of Sawney and Sawney Bean was mm-hmm. an actual cannibal case in 1785. Yeah, we so, talked about him on the what weirdest thing. So you, as you know, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so that would have been something that was in the collective understanding, having mm-hmm. only been 50, 60 years prior to the publication of the Dreadfuls. And so the Dreadfuls come out, and it's the mid 19th century. And then you find what I think is so fascinating with Sweeney as a character type is that he lives on it's now because we saw some early versions of dramatic works go up at the same time the penny dreadfuls were coming out mm-hmm. this means that carrying th- through to our show which opens this friday mm-hmm. we will have now had sweeney on stage for 180 years wow. and that to me is fascinating people don't really think about his longevity and to me yeah. that that's intriguing why why is he so provocative mm-hmm. and it's i i'm convinced it's because he is not one of the supernatural creatures that came later but we're very much informed by todd and and some of the language of todd mm-hmm. um so you've got dracula but with stoker you've got dr jekyll and mr hyde having mm-hmm. two bodies a hidden dark side um, these kind of motivations. All of this was very fascinating to the Victorian mindset, both mm-hmm. pre and then late Victorians. And you see all of that play through. And in fact, you hit the nail on the head with true crime because it's also believed that some of the Jack the Ripper, the early letters that he sent in were thought to mimic some of the language of Sweeney Todd. Mm, inter- I've never heard that. That's interesting. I thought so too. So tell yeah. us a little bit, uh, for anyone who's not that familiar with, with the story, just give us like a, a quick uh, spoiler free obviously thumbnail plot <laughs> synopsis just well what is Sweeney Todd about so the Sweeney Todd that we know today is really based off of a play by Christopher Bond it was written in 1973 and the West End production of it is what Stephen Sondheim went to go see and Sondheim mm-hmm. is Uh, originator of the musical version that we're most familiar with. And so by the time we hit Bond's work and certainly the musical of Sondheim's, the character has changed and the story has changed is Mm -hmm. my 
purpose there. So to answer your question, the Sweeney Todd that we see today is one that is, um, he is returning from having been exiled to Botany Bay. Mm -hmm. He's now returning back to London and he can't be recognized or he'll risk, of course, um, you know, corporal punishment. Uh, mm -hmm. And he comes back because he is searching for his family that was left behind. Okay. And we know by the way it's written, it's 15 years later. So the Sweeney that he is now is an adopted name that he takes as an alias as he comes back to try to discover what's happened in his absence. And the misanthropy of this character cannot be <laughs> Right. He's not a happy person, especially when he finds out um, the tragedies that have befallen mm -hmm. while he's been gone. So he hooks up literally and um, both business wise and a little bit emotionally with another character in our show named Mrs. Lovett. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Lovett runs a pie shop mm -hmm. and it's the shop that's underneath the barber uh, shop where Sweeney comes back to. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, the two of them decide through a series of misadventures, our characters decide to collude with each other and mm -hmm. where his need for revenge meets her need for rising meat prices and practicality in mm -hmm. late Victorian times. Yeah. So um, with all of that being said, cannibalism is no spoiler in this show. Most people right. know that Mrs. Love's pies are Sweeney's <laughs> victims. But how the rest of the story and the relationships with the characters are where really the intrigue and the suspense and the, the hooks, the real twist. It's one of the best twist endings in all of musical theater. People swear mm. by the, if you don't know what the twist is and then you get to those final moments. It's And it's lovely too. I've really been inspired by, and I was sharing this briefly with you when we were prepping for our interview today, that I've been really inspired by slasher movies in this mm -hmm. time so when Sondheim published in 1979, this is when we begin to see the zeitgeist really taking on. The, right. We're not to the 80s slashers that we all know and love. Right, because I mean, this is like right in the same time period as Halloween. and Exactly. I mean, if it's 79, it comes right in between Halloween and Friday the 13th. So. And, and after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so you've got a lot of splatter, mm -hmm. very popular with people. You've got a lot of these kind of themes are really becoming very popular in the zeitgeist. And so with that being said, now what I find very inspirational that I've played with in my production are some of these ideas that we see play through in slasher films. For example, my Joanna, Joanna is Sweeney's daughter who's been left behind. Mm -hmm. She is final girl. So if you know about that's horror, interesting. Yeah. yeah, she really shows all of those things. And that's not my original theory. That's something I came to with some research and some of our cast mm -hmm. shared videos and all of that. So I can't claim that wonderful thing, but it's but that totally makes sense. And it's interesting how those kind of archetypes, you know, we think of the final girl as so uh, central to like the slasher movie. Um, but really, this is an archetype that goes back, I mean, into gothic literature. So it really makes sense that you would kind of combine the two in this character. Absolutely. And um, another trope that I play with from the slasher films and specifically calling back to Halloween, when you look at the script for Halloween, they often don't mention Michael Myers by name. They call him the shape. He's the shape, right? He's the shape. And mm -hmm. so um, this idea, and I'll use my hands, you can kind of describe, but I do this thing in the show where they often have whoever is the villain in that moment does this action. So one person is backing up as they stalk them in the mm. scene. 
And every now and then you'll see a character that pushes back and begins to fight with their, their stalker. Interesting. So I play with that physicality that you even see established in some of the slashers and what we do on stage. I also, this particular, um, my take on Sweeney Todd has been realism and magical realism, mm. meaning you will see bloody, gory blood effects. This is nice. not going to be red scarves being pulled out of a <laughs> signify um no we're using full very safe blood effect in our show so and i feel like with a show like sweeney todd like you really can't pull punches with it you know the the whole point of doing something like sweeney todd um and it's what sondheim you know sondheim definitely was someone who wanted to push the limits of taste, I guess you would say, in convention in musical theater. I mean, you look at what is his show about all the ass- assassins. Yeah. I mean, who yeah. else who else would have done a musical about all these assassins throughout history, exactly. you know? Exactly. So to try and obfuscate the the darkness of it, like you said, with like like you said, stage trickery or something, just really wouldn't work. Like something like Sweeney Todd, it, it's gotta, it's gotta almost, I would think, have a feel like when you read about the old uh, Grand Guignol theater from France, you know, that kind of theater of the grotesque kind of. Yeah, that is literally, um, there are moments in the show where the ensemble have, they take on their personas, they've been told at different points that they, they show, they're very much a Greek chorus at different points, and they mm-hmm. show it, they create these horror, we call them the dance of the grotesques, because that's mm. exactly the um, reference nice. I do them and you'll see them in our show they at different points will freeze into these tableaus of just these frightening moments of these characters that are um pushed to their limits and and um very distorted and contorted and and all of the it's a morally ambiguous show and every character has been um except for the character of anthony hope who was really he's the only one who's written to be just pegged all the side to he's just good all the way Mm -hmm. through he has no ulterior motive but everyone else does (laughs) (laughs) well that sounds great so tell us just a little bit about for anyone who's interested in tickets uh here in albuquerque or anywhere in northern new mexico like where do they go what's the run uh where is it going to be what are the dates you know just give us all the kind of basic information yes i would love to so we open this friday that's june 2nd and Mm -hmm. we're playing every weekend until the end of the month on june 24th and house it's very intimate i love that um we only have a 100 seat house which means we are practically inside the scenes which Mm -hmm. um really also i feel like heightens the the terror level is Mm -hmm. what we try to go for yeah and so with that being the case, our houses are small. We've already been selling out. We haven't even opened and we've already got some houses that are sold out. So I'm telling everyone, buy your tickets now. And you cool. can get those at our website. That's www.mtsabq.org. Mm-hmm. And so that's their main page. That's Musical Theater Southwest. You can just follow the links to buy tickets. And um, we would love to share the show and scare you, give you a good fright. And a lot of humor. I'm very proud of the humor mm-hmm. and the moments where, you know, you have to come up from the darkness in order yeah. to make it to the end of a piece like this. Right. And there's great humor that we've right. got in here. Yeah, well, great. Well, I will definitely be posting that address in the show notes of the episode. And Alyssa, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I'm going to try and get my tickets. As as I've talked about on the other podcast, I'm not classically a fan of musicals. 
But Sweeney Todd has always been like one Sweeney Todd, Rocky Horror Picture Show. There's like a few big exceptions for me. So um, I'm definitely going to be going and yeah. checking this out. Yeah. I can't wait to share it with you and everyone. Thank you so much. And I so mm -hmm. appreciate being able to be on the podcast. Congrats on your new podcast. Oh, thank awesome. you. Even more material to listen to. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much. And uh, so this has been Horror from the High Desert. And I will be back with you guys in a couple weeks. Bye.